Hello and welcome to the True Purpose podcast. My name is Will Stewart and I'm the founder of True Purpose Enterprises, a collection of businesses created to empower and promote future-proof enterprises that drive both happiness and success. On this podcast, our conversations will explore what it means to lead with true purpose and why this is necessary for people, planet, and most crucially, profit. If you like inspiring stories of resilience, purpose, happiness, and biscuits, then your ears are in the right place. From the classroom in Southeast London to founding one of the most progressive and relevant marketing consultancies on the planet, my guest this week is a passionate, true purpose leader. Gary Pope is co-founder of Kids Industries, and Kids Industries guides the biggest brands in the world to make decisions that are best for families through insight, strategy, and creative. He often gets stranded in Cape Town, so my heart bleeds for him. He's from South East London, like me, so naturally I'm going to like him. He's honest, direct, and motivated. Kids Industries is built on purpose, so today we're going to hear all about Gary, his journey, and how purpose shaped it. So um, thank you for joining. Um, I'm really excited about uh, learning more um, more about you. So I want to go back to the origin story um, and start in the classroom. So you were you were a teacher to start with, right? I um, I ended up in teaching almost by accident. Really, a very good friend of mine had gone to university to to be a teacher. I was actually going to join the Royal Marines, believe it or not. Um, and uh, a very lucky leg fracture meant I had to think about something else. And in the period that I was recovering from my leg fracture, I thought, oh, I don't want to throw myself in front of a tank. Let me be a teacher instead. So there you go. Um, I taught primary school, Will, and I finished my career um, actually as I was transitioning from being an educator uh, into when I became a learning designer for grown-ups. Um, I ended up teaching English in a number of, of uh, private schools, actually, to, to A-level students. And it taught me that I didn't really like teaching almost grown-ups. I liked teaching smaller people. And, and I think that kind of understanding of where my passion lie as a facilitator of education meant that I was always going to end up back with, with littler people, actually. Yeah, why 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 do you prefer teaching you know kids rather than adults? It's do you know what I, say, I, I still teach adults when when we facilitate stuff and and I help them understand children. Adults are great. I like adults, but but children you can have a proper conversation with. Children are able to show you things that you know unlock memories in yourself that enable you to really connect with the humanity of of what it is to be us now. Um, hopes, dreams, fears, aspirations, innocence, purity, all of those good things are all there inherent in our children. And as adults, obviously, we have, uh, I'm sounding very pious now, aren't I? I'm not really. But as adults, we have an absolute mission to ensure that our children have the best possible journey into adulthood that we, we, we can. And in becoming what this business has become, I think that's probably one of the red threads when we talk about true purpose. And it's very difficult, isn't it? Because in doing what we do, and, and your own business will isn't a million miles away from this. You know, once I once did did a did a did a talk to um to the World Health Organization, and being a little bit flippant, um, I introduced myself as Gary, and I said I make money from children, which to that audience didn't go down particularly well, and it was the hardest gig I've ever done. But that is what we do, right? It's what I do. It's what what you do to a degree. 
But what we try to do is we do it for the right reasons. We try to do it with a sense of what, what is, is right and wrong. And we're a set of moral codes that enable us to do that in a way that we can, yes, make profit, but also feel good about what it is that we're doing. That's the, that's the absolute key. You know, making profit isn't bad. You know, profit helps businesses do better things, grow, employ people. You know, and yeah, we make money from children isn't a statement that, you know, is an easy deliverable, is it? But, um, but you know, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing if the purpose is behind it. And, you know, your background of, you know, teaching kids and, you know, the one thing I look at with teachers and I think, you know, because what a tough job, I'd never want to do it. And having done a bit of it for my own in lockdown, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. But there is that huge huge reward of seeing someone learn progress grow and become something wonderful uh, that for me must be the the trigger of why you would you know why you would go into that industry basically i've never had teaching called an industry but i suppose it is um you know it's a vocation it's very simple Edu- educators are are generally born not made i think and you know the the i, I finished teaching more nearly 25 years ago it's in your bones. It's always in your bones if you choose to do it. And I, I have conversations with very senior educators today, professors and such like, and we speak the same language. And I think once once you speak the same language, and that language, by the way, is just childhood, understanding what's right for children. Yes, there's pedagogy. Yes, there's understanding how you convey information and how you engage children and how you design learning experiences. But all those things can be taught actually innately understanding what makes a little human being work and we're all different so each little human being works in a slightly different way that's something that you are you never choose to do you're you're kind of called to do i think the educational system in this country is designed for a specific human type and hasn't changed for 50 60 70 years you know creative kids aren't particularly you know they don't fit the system the system is designed or kids that you know follow rules, listen to you know what they need to do and apply that specifically. So for me, there's a very li- limited amount of you know real learning. Whereas things like problem solving and you know thinking around how you you know fix a problem, influencing skills. There's so many things that could be better about education. But I think we should park it there. Just tell me this: Were you a happy teacher? I was. Yeah, I was. I had to give feedback to a a young lad's father who just happened to be a yardie when I was teaching in Brixton. And that yardie, as you can imagine, I was absolutely bricking it. I'm going to have to tell him that his kids are shy. What's he going to do to me or my family? And this man, hulking great guy, filled the door frame, came in, sat down, listened attentively, went home, spoke to his child, and his child's behaviour changed. And that that sort of impact... That's worth every every minute of it, and that and that is what makes you happy as a teacher. But let's move on. Obviously, you know why then? Why if you know if you were happy, it was you know it's purpose led, right? Teaching is a purpose led yeah. profession. Yeah. You know you're doing it for the good of of the little humans. Why would you Why would you leave it? You know you couldn't even afford to get a bus to work. And at the moment that I was teaching, I'm going to be very honest. In the period when I was teaching, shortly after the, the big education reform act by Kenneth Baker, when the national curriculum first came in, just my cohort all of a sudden were given this this absolute catalogue of paperwork to do. And much as you've said, it doesn't. It's not then about assisting children it's about evaluating marking and, and, and assessing which has to be done 
but you didn't have the time to do it. And actually, you know, I, I think I became disillusioned and I was doing some some freelance facilitation and theatre work and I just gravitated elsewhere. So it kind of happened rather than, a, you know, a, an instantaneous moment of, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, well, totally. And, you know, then go on and make a bigger influence and a bigger impact on a greater number of children by doing something else. As you say, you know, you still speak the same language. You've still got, you know, that thing inside you which is about teaching learning or you know improving people then it still counts right you're still part of that tribe of of education um talk to me about the you know why did you found it i guess and what were the founding principles at the start actually i transitioned from education to be a learning designer and as a learning designer i was working with the likes of ericsson and ba and funnily enough disney and disney asked us as a business to do a piece of external as opposed to internal comms. We created something that was called the Disney Channel Kids Awards, which was a a traveling show and it had pop stars and it had had David Beckham and we had the Spice Girls and we had 911 and all these bands. And because I'd done kids, I was given that show to write and produce. Long story short, you know, we did that for a couple of years. Um, The business, the two owners of the business decided they wanted to go in different directions, made us all redundant. And I looked at my soon-to-be wife, this was literally a month before we got married, and said, well, we, I enjoyed doing that. Maybe I should do that. And she said, well, you look like you're having a nice time. I said, do you want to do it with me? And she said, yeah. So we got back from our wedding and started Kids Industries, and that, that was it. You know, it's kind of, sod it, let's do it, as, uh, as Richard Branson would say. So many businesses are founded out of a situation like that. You know, it's an enforced thing, I guess. And, and you know, we're all dealing with market factors on everything else that's going on. But it's a, it's an incredible, I don't know, sliding doors moment maybe for you, uh, for you and your wife, where it's like, well, we found something we like doing and then it was taken away. So let's just do that thing ourselves, right? Yeah, you know, I had the, the good fortune to have a, you know, and still have a wonderful wife and make sure that this ship keeps sailing and does does a phenomenal job of it. It was a sliding doors moment, Well, it really was. And we didn't know what on earth we did. Oh, and I guess this, this goes back to that, to that true purpose. We knew we wanted to do things for children. There wasn't a question about making money. There wasn't a question about being a marketing agency or a research agency or, or an innovation business, all those kind of wonderful things that we've turned out to be. It was rather, let's do stuff for kids because that's what we liked doing. Did you, so you got married, had a great time, came back. Now neither of you are working. And your you know, principles then, you know, was it named? You know, did you come up with the name, logo, that sort of thing straight away? Or was it, you know, you want to do something for kids, I get that. Or we want to do something for kids. Or what, open a school, you know, put, create a new TV show. So my background was always in, in let's call it experiences, for want of a better expression. And in creating the, the Disney Channel Kids Awards, that was an experience. I did some other work creating experiences in the Millennium Dome, creating experiences for Thompson Holiday, so on and so forth. So when the business was born, we thought we made experiences, and we still do. It just transpires that experiences don't necessarily have to be physical. They can be digital. They can be play experiences. They can be conversation, whatever. Experiences are about pure emotion, really. And through pure emotion, you unlock all sorts of wonderful things that transpire to be the things that are necessary to, you know, to build, sell, and, and manufacture products. 
you know, what, what was the first climb? How did you like, okay, so we want to do experiences or, you know, positive experiences for kids. How do you move that into an actual, what are we selling here? What's the concept? What's the value we're adding? And how are we going to pitch that and win clients? You know, we were we were so far removed from understanding those important things that all businesses, you know, need to have as their founding principles. Now we just got on and did it. Um, the principle that we had, again, this comes back to purpose, the principle that we knew to be true because we, we, we explored this in some detail with, with actually different head teachers and a couple of behavioral psychologists that I'd worked with when I was teaching was, you know, we didn't know what the business was going to do well. We had no, and we've only just worked out what a business does 21 years later, right? But we knew how the business was going to do it. And that how is written around and enshrined in something that we call forefoot thinking, which is the way that we see the world through the eyes of a child. Simple blend of three sciences, psychology, biology, sociology. The psychology, because you've got to know what's in the head if you want to write something that they're going to connect with. The biology, because if you want to make them a toy, you've got to know how big their hands are. The sociology, because this is the important bit, and this is the purpose. The child sits right in the middle of society, the community that immediately look after that child. And outside that, you know, sits the wider family, the extended family. Then there's the local community. Then there's society. And there's these five or six concentric rings that all protect the child, quite rightly. And our job as a business is help our clients cut through each of those concentric protective rings and not upset any of people on the way. So forefoot thinking as an approach enables us to look at the landscape, understand what the landscape is actually saying, and avoid that. Do you remember that terrible Cadbury's sports kit for schools thing where you had to eat your body weight in chocolate to get a tennis ball? You know, totally not thinking about the reality of a family and how a family lives. If, if a business that we work with doesn't align with our values, we don't do the work. And, you know, that's one of the ways in which we keep purpose front and center for us. And not that we don't even do the work, we decline the opportunity. And that is such a borderline pretentious, wanky thing to say. But in doing what we do, it has to be the case. There is a company whom offered us a fantastic opportunity on paper. So we took it back to our junior board of director, kids, directors, kids that, that, that we listened to, as well as our entire staff, and said, are we going to do this? And we had a, a town hall about it and said, we're going to decline this. And we declined that because of that <coughs> sociology piece. We can't help somebody do something that isn't going to benefit the child first. If it's benefiting them first, that's not right. That doesn't enable us to do what we do. Yeah, so yeah, a few bits to unpick there. I mean, A, yeah, I mean, having that principle of we're not going to do the work unless it ties in with our morals and what we're trying to achieve. That is choosing purpose over profit, which is exactly what this podcast is about, because there are ways to make money doing things that aren't necessarily core to what you're doing. And those are the really difficult decisions as a business owner. It's just like, well, you know, if we'd sign up to do, you know, eat your, eat your weight in, in Cadbury's chocolate thing, you know, we could, and they're going to pay us loads of money. Then from a business point of view, we should do that. You know, if you had external shareholders and, you know, all these people, your articles of association of the business, so you've got to make profit for your shareholders, rah, rah, rah. you know, whereas you have the choice being an independent business to actually make those right calls. And that's the sort of behavior that we're really, trying to highlight more and there is so many people doing it you know it's doing it for the right reasons you mentioned there about you know the starting thing was like we were going to we didn't know what we were doing but we knew how we were going to do it 
So you would have set some values of business, the things you want to do. You know, the, the early years of trying to actually formulate what this is going to be is, is really difficult. You know, without a client, without a brief or product to sell and no proof of concept and no team and nothing else behind you, all you've got is your how, all you've got is your purpose. So, you know, you really like a, you know, trailblazer and, and something I find really inspiring is that that is something that you've, you know, formulated over such a long period of time that has huge value now. But 21 years ago, you could have never done that. You could have crashed and burned and probably got close to it many times in that time because a lot of your clients would have been, don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. We've got to deliver some work to a client. This is what we need to do. If you want to go all, you know, John Lennon hippie on me and talk about, oh, think of the children, we're not interested. So, you know, tell me maybe an early story of where people just didn't, like people didn't buy into the, the how and the principles do you have any of those that one there's been two three occasions in the entire history of the company where we've had to there's other times where we decline work because the client's not right right or we're not right you know that happens or we, we haven't got capacity whatever it might be but in those instances where you have a jarring of the values to the extreme that you're alluding to there where it's pro- profit over the benefit of the children three times that's that that's happened Obviously, I'm not going to tell you who they were for fear of them coming after me. But they, and as I think about those three occasions, all very similar because it's about the individual and it's about the individual, not necessarily the corporation, the individual in that organization who is trying to achieve whatever they are trying to achieve and they're going to do it in any way they can. And actually, you know this because, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a collaborator and you're a people person. You work with people because you like working with people. You take on jobs and you have successful projects because people work well with people. It isn't necessarily. And you know what? Would I take this advice myself way back then? Yeah, I probably would. If you're sitting across the table from somebody and you are not connecting with that person and you're going to spend the next six months of your life delivering something which is going to make that person look good and for which you are going to get no thanks because that's what you and I do and we accept that and we're happy to do that, you've got to make sure that you like that person. And that means that your values have to align. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken about it and we you know, talk about it a lot, but you know, morals, values, ethics... If those line between people, whether you're, you know, you're going to be have a, have a friendship, you know, a business relationship, you know, employ someone, work for someone, you know, you think about your think about your boss. If you align on values, ethics, and morals, generally, think everything else is going to be all right. It's very easy to spot that early doors in a relationship. Um, and the trouble with you know agency life, exactly as you you highlighted, you know, you're gonna you're gonna make someone else look really good. And then we have a responsibility, if you're good at your job, and we're, we're good, um, you've really got to think about the, you know, the influence and the power that you have if you're going to back, back a horse or back this project. And things change as well. People change. You know, you can start off with thinking it's the right thing, and then it, it changes. You know, it's interesting. You've got, you know, you've got three of these, and you remember them clearly and how important they were because that is you believing and sticking to what is the most important thing in your business and it is about the purpose these are our founding Mm. principles 21 years later i don't know how many other purpose-led businesses are of an age a 21 year age because this is quite rare luckily today there's more and more businesses that are being founded on purpose but you know three major times 
in your history that have really framed your thinking ultimately because those saying no's are the ones that really yeah drive that core purpose and drive the culture that you've established in in uh, kids industries do you think and it's interesting isn't it because i've never really i don't think we've ever sort of taken the time in this particular conversation to maybe stop and think about it but we've never really taken the time to think we're purpose-led per se because it's just in our dna because of what we do right so we were lucky in that regard yeah because we can't be anything else and there are businesses aren't there which you know, is, is there such a thing as purpose washing? There probably is. You know, there's a lot of virtue signaling goes on now. And I, I'm not shy of saying, you know, it pisses me off, actually. I read stuff and I actually get quite angry about some of the things that I read because I know the reality. And I think that it's very easy for a business to decide that they have a particular purpose and to wave a flag about that purpose. But doing it is something entirely, entirely different. I totally agree. And it's why, you know, our new company is called True Purpose Enterprises. We've spoken about purpose for a long time. But if you think about the concept of true versus fake purpose, a company could be saying, well, we plant a thousand trees a year. We're great, aren't we? But if they're cutting down a million trees a year, it's actually fake purpose because, and it's the same with greenwashing and all these things. When, and, you know, as soon as a trend becomes big enough that everyone thinks it's important for, you know, the, the, to hire the, the greatest talent and, you know, be successful and, and get, you know, media friendly, then everyone starts talking about it. And that's, that is still a positive part of this thing because everyone, you know, planting a thousand trees is better than planting none. So, you know, I don't want to, you know, diss that too much, but yeah, that's the bit that really gets my goat is when people are pretending to be, you know, purposeful or whatever, which is why True purpose is the key thing. Now, true purpose for me and why you know, I invited you on the podcast, because I'm really looking for those people that are prepared to make those really difficult choices in business, because it is right, right? If you, you know, how do you future proof your business? You build it on purpose and you make that purpose central. And the reason I think it's you know, future proofing is because Gen Z's, Alphas, you know, the ones that are coming through now, and you can see it with Gen Z's already. Purpose is really important to them. You know, knowing they're doing something for good, you know, they actually value that much greater than, you know, Gen Xs or, you know, any other previous generation, as well as, you know, the right box and flexibility and other things other than just, you know, is there enough money here? So I just think that's, I've sort of gone around the houses a little bit, but that was the big thing, true purpose versus fake purpose. The trick with the gen, and, you know, we've got, I'm sure you have, I have a I have a swathe of Gen Zs sitting downstairs right now. Um, and they are, I would say they're different because I'm not, I don't necessarily buy into this idea that a particular, a particular generation lives in a particular epoch and then a particular year they swap to be a different letter. What load of bollocks that is. But what I do do think is that as time passes and trees grow, so people's needs, wants, desires evolve. And in the age that we live, I understand why things like purpose have become more important to younger people than they were. I don't think we never had purpose as younger people. I just don't think we articulated it and communicated it in the way that people do. We didn't know it exists. I think maybe we called it happiness when we were younger. You know, I don't know. You know, it's almost a construct now, isn't it? And finding, as you, you know, you rightly allude to, a true purpose has to sit somewhere deep within and 
not be constructed and rather is a lived experience. And that, you know, without getting too ephemeral about it, that that is what true purpose is, right? Something you feel in your head and your heart and you just keep putting one foot in front of the other because that is your purpose. Finding people to join or using your word, you know, a tribe is the trick in running a business. Finding the right tribe for your particular vehicle is is the big ask. Um, on on that, I mean, yeah, did we just call it happiness? Does purpose make you happy? Does purpose make you happy? Yeah, I suppose it will. Given what I've just said, I suppose I didn't realise, but I suppose it must do, yeah, because otherwise everything would be a little bit pointless, wouldn't it? My professional and my personal purposes overlap because, you know, my 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 career has been around the family, ostensibly, and... My business is built around my family. It's a family business because of my wife's important role in it. And so, you know, does it make me happy? Yeah, I think so. There's a, there's a, there's a brilliant book, which I read years and years ago, called The 500-Year Delta. The 500-Year Delta is by two Californian futurologists whom I never really place great store in generally, but these two kind of hit a note with me. What they said was that everything moves in loops of five. And I don't know whether it does or it doesn't, but the example that they placed on it, and actually it places it right here where I'm talking to you from now, which is which is Borough, just south of the, of the River Thames, where 500 years ago, this is what was called the Liberty. And it's where the bear baiting and the theatres and the orange sellers, if you catch my drift and so on and so forth, came. And there was no law here because it was outside the city walls. And what they say in their book is that at that time, the butcher, the candlestick maker and the baker would all sit in a row. Their shops would be in a row. They would live above their shops. They would barter between themselves in terms of a, a local economy. And actually, because they were in the middle of their work, doing their job, talking to their colleagues in different businesses, they were ostensibly happy and 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 life worked for them. And it's funny how now, you know, post-pandemic, I'm not drawing some great allusion to, to to now to then, but there is there is echoes of where we are now with people like you doing this and trying to tear down certain walls. You know, you and I met because, you know, we could look like like competitors. We're not, but we started to sniff around each other, realize we got on, and so you start to talk and collaborate and share and all of those sort of things. You know, human nature. Is human nature if you know what it is that you do and how you do it. You know, you've got to, as a human being, have a North Star to keep you going. That baker's was just cooking great bread. That butcher was just doing the right cuts. That was their life, you know, that was, and they were happy doing that and they worked as a community. And I think sometimes in today's society, and I'm going to go a little bit left wing here. We miss some of that, don't we? Because we people hold a mirror up to us, which is this this unachievable mirror, which is just ridiculous. And we lose a sense of what is real, and we lose a sense of of what it is to be here now in the moment. And I think that only comes really with getting a little bit older and wiser, aches and pains. I love I love that I love that story um, because my great great grandfather started his business in Borough in 1888. There's so many illusions, and particularly for kids when you look at what they're going through, but there's no illusions about, you know, what your purpose is, your mission, or your North Star, as you've mentioned it. It's like, you know, this is what I'm trying to achieve. And when you spoke about, you know, what's my purpose, 
you know, fa- you know, I'm farmer, right? You know, yeah, you're a, you know, run a business and you've got influence over all these people, but you know, your your main purpose, if you are, you know, lucky enough to have kids, is to be a good father. Yeah, you know, what does that mean? You're just being good and like talking about purpose making you happy and being a good person making you happy in any aspect, whether it's life or business. I think it all makes sense. I think it's an absolute no-brainer and it's basic common sense. And I think, you know, it's it's remarkable that you were thinking of all this sort of stuff, not in obviously the same detail and your concentric rings of, of community around a child, but to be doing that sort of thinking 21 years ago you know, was just very, um, as I said earlier, you know, trailblazing. I think go back to what we just said, Paul, you know, nothing changes. People don't change. What changes are the accoutrement that sit around people and the ways that they can communicate things. You know, as well as I do, you know, take the, the, the LinkedIn rants that both you and I have from time to time. You know, it's it's a way of venting spleen when people are are either talking falsehoods or trying to, trying to, you know, tell us things that aren't necessarily true. To have the opportunity, as we do, as people that run our own businesses, not to be curbed in what we say because of, we've taken a corporate shilling is an incredibly powerful thing to have at our disposal. To be able to vocalise our purpose is not something that is new. The tools that we have to do it are new and the fact that we're able to put a vernacular around it and call it purpose and all star whatever is new but good people and it sounds very pious now don't we but good people will always have a purpose i think i agree and it's you know it's why i wanted to do this podcast to hear from more people and talk about these things mm. we want inspirational leaders and role models for younger people to look up to in business that isn't all about just making money, just make money. And that's what's really important. Um, I've got one final question, um, obviously the, the tough one, um, and having seen your biscuit drawer, what is your favourite biscuit and, and why? I think that's easy, Will. It is the the indomitable, unquestionably the uh, the king, queen, bishop, of all biscuits, the lemon puff. It was, do you know it? It was two puff pastry biscuits, obviously full of, of as many additives as you could possibly shake a stick at to keep that puffiness. It was glazed with a sugar, so it's a kind of golden brown coat. And in between was a sort of tartrazine fueled lemon cream. There is a Turkish equivalent that is available now, which calls itself lemon puff. You can get it in, you know, those lovely international world food stores that you get. You can get it in them. Um, but the biscuit is not puffy. It's like a it's like a nearly puffy, but not quite puffy. Not 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 puff daddy. Anyway, but, um, it, it's a great answer. I've never had anyone answer with a lemon puff. Actually, it must be tough for you having a favourite biscuit that doesn't now exist. But one thing I would challenge you on your choice is is not it's not dunkable. A lemon puff isn't dunkable because the puff bit. And maybe this is where your Turkish friends have got it right so whilst it is a good choice i'm not gonna i'm not gonna endorse it myself it's your podcast i don't want to be rude right but but you're wrong and there's a couple of reasons you're wrong the first one is that the lemon puff as i mentioned is coated in a beautiful sugar golden coating which gives it a solidity i'm gonna go find some i'm happy to have a dunk off with you i will have a dunk off with you at some point 
Listen, thank you very, very much, uh, Gary. It's been it's been an awesome conversation. I love hearing the stories. You know, like we're trying to build a community here um, of purpose-led leaders and hearing their stories and hearing them talk about purpose. And, you know, this has been a, a real education, a real joy for me. Um, so thank you very much, Gary.